All right, everyone, let's take out our Bibles together. If you will, take out your copy of Scripture and turn with me to Mark chapter 8 this morning. Mark chapter 8 will be in verses 22 through 26. Mark 8, verses 22 through 26. I don't know if you've ever wondered this, but I have. Why is there so much blindness in the Bible? You see it all over the place. There's so many blind people in Scripture. It's a theme that comes up time and time again, especially in Jesus' ministry. Jesus healed a number of blind men, including one that we will look at today. He healed more blind people than we can count, actually, because at times the, the gospel will say that they brought him the blind in that particular area. They simply brought him those who were blind around that area, and he healed them. And so we don't even know how many people Jesus healed who were blind. But I am convinced that no doubt the reason that we see so much blindness in the Bible is this. Because Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4 that Satan has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they do not see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And that, I believe, is why there is so much physical blindness in the Bible. Satan has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they do not see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And so because of that, every single human being needs the Lord to say to them and to their hearts what he said to the void in Genesis 1 verse 3. Let there be light. That is salvation. Is God saying to us, to our hearts and to our minds, let there be light. Light. He speaks into that darkness inside of us and gives us his light so that we can see the glory that is there. We just didn't see it before. We were blinded to it. The glory that is there in the face of Jesus Christ, the glory of God himself. The Bible speaks of physical blindness over and over and over again to show us the great human problem of spiritual blindness. It has often been said the difference between physical blindness and spiritual blindness is that a physically blind person knows that they are blind, whereas a spiritually blind person does not know it. The late Tim Keller once wrote, the deepest blindness is blindness to your own blindness. Or similarly, D.A. Carson once wrote, this is the problem that those who are confident of their ability to see do not ask for sight. And so they remain blind with the culpable blindness of smug self-satisfaction. There are none so blind as those who do not know they are blind. And so it is in that light that we look at another example in the Gospels today of Jesus healing physical blindness. Let's go to our text and read it together. I ask you to follow along with me in your copy of Scripture as I read Mark 8, 22 through 26. This is God's word. Mark writes, And they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a man, a blind man, and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the the village. 
And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, Do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. And then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes, and his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home, saying, Do not even enter the village. I want to take this in two parts today. First, I want to spend some time thinking about this man's caring friends, and then we'll spend some time thinking about the Savior's mysterious methods. This man's caring friends and the Savior's mysterious methods. First, the man's caring friends. This blind man had a serious disadvantage in the hand that he had been been dealt in life. A serious disadvantage. His life was no doubt very difficult, especially in that day. But he had one thing going for him. Friends who cared for him. Friends who were willing to take him to Jesus. There are few things in life more precious than having friends like this. And I think it good and right for us to stop for a few moments this morning and to be thankful for the friends that we have. Think with me in your own life and be thankful in your own heart to God this morning for the friends that you have, friends who would drop anything if you called them to, if you needed them to come, they would come, they would show up. We need to be thankful for the friends that we have in this life. But these, these were not just friends who provided a good relationship. They were not just friends, like we just said, who would, would come when you needed them to come. They were not simply friends that made this man happy by their presence. They were friends who cared enough about him to bring him to Jesus. That's what kind of friends these were. Do you know what it is like to have friends like this? Picture this scene with me, if you will. It's a a normal, sunny day in Bethsaida. And there are some friends just sitting around outside talking and hanging out, and one of them is blind. But they've been friends for years and years, just talking, just spending time with one another like they do every day, perhaps a little bored. And all of a sudden, they, they sense a commotion going on in the middle of town. And as someone walks by, they overhear this man, Jesus of Nazareth, has come to visit our town today. The same man who fed 5,000 people with a little boy's lunch. The same man who healed a woman who had been bleeding for 12 years when she just touched his garment. The same man who rose from the dead, the, the daughter of a synagogue leader. The same man who heals the deaf and the mute and the blind. One of us is blind in this group. And so the friends urged the blind man, come on, we've got to get you to Jesus. But the blind man says, I don't know, why don't you just not worry about it? He's got enough people clamoring for his attention. And they reply, are are you serious? This is your chance. He could change your entire life with just a touch. But for the blind man, he has learned his entire life to accept his infirmity. He's learned not to hope too much. He's learned to be realistic about his lot in life. And blindness has honestly become part of his identity. Part of him thinks it would be easier just to stay right where he's at than to take this risk, 
to risk being disappointed. And yet his friends are insistent. They will not give up. And they they stand him up and they lead him by the hand and they bring him to Jesus. You see, our very best friends, our very best friends are the ones who care about us the most. They're the ones who care about us so much that they would be willing to bring us to Jesus. If we are honest, that's not always what we want, is it? It's not always what we want. There are times where our our good, caring friends want to point us to Jesus and we think, "Can't, can't we just keep everything surface level right now? Why do we have to get into that? Why, why do we have to begin talking about spiritual things? Why, why do I have to start feeling vulnerable all of a sudden? And yet those around us who care about us most deeply are the ones who are willing, even when we don't want it, to point us to Jesus. These are our true friends, those who point us to Christ. Today, I can look out in this crowd and I can see a few of mine. People who are a friend to me like that, who are willing to point me to Christ, even when I don't particularly want it. Do you know what it feels like to have friends like that? Not just to have someone who would drop everything and come and help you when you needed it, but someone who loves you so much they're willing to point you to Christ. If not, I ask you to pray for one. Pray for one this morning. If you honestly don't have a friend like that, pray that God would send someone into your life who would care about you that much to point you to Jesus, even when you don't want it. This is one of the main functions of a church. A church, this is what we do for one another. We are friends who point one another to Jesus. There will be seasons of life where you need friends to bring you to Jesus to plead with him on your behalf. There will be seasons where you need friends who will lead you by the hand to him. Or if you think back to the the friends of the paralyzed man in Mark chapter 2, friends who would carry you to Jesus and would not stop until they got you to him. To bear our burden with us, as Paul says in Galatians, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. You can't say it much better than the man himself, Bill Withers. Lean on me when you're not strong. I'll be your friend. I'll help you carry on. But this is more than than Bill Withers was talking about. It was more than just lean on me. It's I'm going to bring you to someone that you can truly lean on. My challenge to each one of you is this. Make yourself available to the people of this church. I challenge you to make yourself available to the people of this church by being involved in the life of this church. By by not just coming to worship and not just coming consistently and regularly, but by showing up early and talking with those around you and getting into their lives and letting them into yours by staying late and getting to know them, fellowshipping with people by being involved in the the events of the church, by perhaps serving in some way or being on one of our ministry teams. But here's why. Here's, Here's what I'm getting at. Those who avail themselves to the life of the church, those who make themselves available, 
are the ones that find so many friends coming to their rescue and coming to their aid when they are in a season of need and pointing them to Jesus. But those who who come to church perhaps once a month and slip in a couple minutes late, sit in the back, and then slip out before everybody gets to them, all of a sudden when their time of need comes, they don't find as many people surrounding them. They don't find all of that attention coming from the church, and sometimes they wonder why. And honestly, it's just a very natural human nature type of thing. There are people that we see often, there are people that that are in our lives and have made us a part of their lives. And so when they go through through something, we know them. We, We know what's going on. We're thinking of them. But when there's people that we hardly ever see and they go through, through something we, we don't even know, we don't even know about it. How can we come to them? How can we surround them? We just don't know what's going on. And so if you make yourself available to the people of this church and become involved in the life of this church and the lives of those in this church, it will become to you a true family, a true family. But if this is just a place for you to attend a worship service every now and again, don't be surprised if the church never feels like a true family to you, if you feel like you don't have those friends that we just spoke of. And so we we see the wonderful blessing it is to have friends like this man, to have friends who are willing to do this, but flip it on the other side for a second. How can each one of us be that kind of friend for someone else? How can you be a friend like that for others? How can we be the kind of friend that is not just there for someone, which is an important ministry in and of itself? It is an important ministry. I don't want to make light of being there for one another, but how can we be the kind of friend who is not only there, but who loves someone enough to point them to Jesus, to bring them to Jesus like this man's friends brought him? When you are ministering to your brothers and sisters in Christ, when you are giving a text or a call, when you are sending something to them like a card, when you're taking a meal, when you're visiting them at home or in the hospital, point them to Jesus in that moment. Point one another to Jesus. Don't settle for simply being there, which is a good ministry, but point one another to Jesus as you minister to one another. As you you think about what you're about to do, I'm about to serve this person in need here in the church, perhaps take some time and think about a passage of scripture that could apply to their situation, that could strengthen and encourage them. How could you share that passage of the word with them and give them a word from the Lord? Encourage them to look to Jesus. Here's another very easy way to do this. Pray with them. Pray with them. Did you notice in our text... In verse 22, how they they brought him to Jesus and then they begged Jesus to touch him. It says his friends begged Jesus to touch. Jesus, will you touch our friend? They pleaded and begged with Jesus on his behalf. And so pray for one another, brothers and sisters. Pray for one another. What a blessing it is to know that someone is praying for you. But here's an even greater blessing, to have someone pray for you in your presence, in your presence. How often do we do this? Not just praying for 
our brothers and sisters in Christ when we're alone. But when we go see them and praying with them in that moment, can I pray for you? It's the very essence of, of true friendship where two people go to the Lord together in dependence and humility and faith and one pleads with the Lord on behalf of the other. Do you know what it feels like to have someone do that for you in the moment? It's, it's, it's a wonderful ministry and it's so simple to pray for one another in each other's presence. We can also apply this friendship to those that we know who have not yet met the Savior. We've been talking about ministry to one another. But what about our friends who have not yet met Christ? Be a friend to them by introducing them to Jesus. These men, or these these friends, we don't know that they were all men, they brought this blind man to Jesus so that he could heal their blindness. So that he could heal their blindness. Introduce your friends to Jesus if you care about them. Speak to them about the one who has saved your soul and brought you to God. Get them into the presence of Jesus by inviting them to a worship service or to a Bible study. Do you care about the souls of those people that you know, your neighbors, your co-workers, your, your regular acquaintances out in the community, your family members? Do you care about their souls? If you care about their souls, have you introduced them to Jesus yet? Have you introduced them? Somebody's got to introduce them. Somebody who already knows him has to introduce them. Have you spoken to them about the one who has done so much for you? Have you invited them to come to church with you? If you care about their eternal eternal souls, introduce them to Jesus. Take them and bring them to Jesus. And so what a blessing it is to have friends like this or to be able to be a friend like this. This man had such a blessing in his life, even though his life was difficult. But as we've seen the 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 caring friends of this man, I want to look now at the Savior's mysterious methods in healing him. The Savior's mysterious, mysterious methods. Look at verse 23 with me. Verse 23. It said, he led him out of the village and then he spit on his eyes. Jesus literally spit in this man's face to heal him. He spit in his face. If the Savior did things the way we would expect, he would not heal by spitting on someone. He would not use this degrading method. If he did things the way we would expect, well, if it was up to us, we would have Jesus pray a a very ornate prayer, probably using lots of really nice sounding words and some kind of respectable, honorable means, like perhaps anointing this man with holy oil or something of that nature. But no, Jesus spit in his face. Now, if someone spits in your face, if someone were to spit in your face, what would that communicate to you? What does that communicate if someone spits in your face? Well, it's one of the most vile insults that you could receive. It's a physical representation of intense hatred and cursing that you want the worst for that person. If you spit in their face... I can hardly think of a stronger expression of hatred and disrespect than spitting in someone's face. You want the worst for them. But when Jesus spits on this man's eyes, he gives him the greatest blessing that he has ever received. 
He spit in his face. To be spit upon by Jesus means not cursing, but healing. You remember, if you will, uh, go go back with me in your minds to that that Gentile woman in Mark chapter 7 who pleaded with Jesus to heal her daughter, to deliver the demon out of her daughter. And Jesus said, it's not right to take the children's bread and give it to the, the dogs. And the woman essentially communicated to Jesus that she was happy being a dog under the table getting crumbs. That's all she would need. She was happy to receive crumbs under Jesus's table. In the same way, we should have such a love and admiration for Jesus, such an affection for him, that if he walked by and spit in our face, we would fall down and thank him for it. If Jesus walked by and spit in our face, we would fall down and thank him for it. Do you remember John the Baptist who said he was not worthy to untie the sandals of the Lord? I'm not worthy to untie his sandals. Well, I am not worthy to have Jesus spit in my face. Do you feel like that this morning? Not even worthy to have him spit in my face. And if he did so, what a blessing. What an honor. To have his attention, even for a moment, to have him spit in our face. Yet he has done so much more than that for us, has he not? Truly, we are not worthy of him. There are many Christians throughout the world today who at one point in their lives looked at the gospel with contempt. They looked down on the gospel. They looked at it with contempt at one point in their lives, and yet today they are Christians. At one point in their lives... The good news of Christ came out of the mouth of some preacher or perhaps some neighbor and they despised it as nothing more than spit. They heard that message but despised it as nothing more than spit. And yet what was true for this blind man became true for them. That same spit ended up being what cured their spiritual blindness. Just like Paul who became a believer, and then started preaching the message that he once despised and reviled and persecuted. We too, with Paul, have become fools for Christ. If you are a Christian today, Scripture tells us that you are a fool for Christ. We have become voluntarily fools for Christ, despised by the world for a message that they find offensive and disrespectful. Our message is nothing but dirty spit to many in the world. Paul wrote that the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But we joyfully accept this. We joyfully accept this. We will gladly be fools for Christ. What an honor to be a fool in the eyes of the world for our Lord Jesus Christ. The world will look down on our message, but we will continue to proclaim it because we know what it means to be able to say, I once was blind, but now I see. We know what that means, and we want that for others, do we not? We want that for others. We want more people to be able to feel that and to be able to say that in their hearts. I once was blind, but now I see. The spit of the Savior is worth more Then all of the money and all of the treasures and all of the the rubies and diamonds and all of the delicacies of the entire world. 
The spit of our Savior is worth more than all of it. Now, I come finally to, I think, the main question that we're all asking when Jesus does this. Is why in the world does he heal in two stages? Why would Jesus do this? Notice, he he healed in two stages. At first, he spits on him, lays his hands on him. Verse 23, do you see anything? Verse 24, he looked up, he said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. And the idea there is, he's got some form of sight, but it's blurry. It's very blurry. People look like trees. So, So he's not blind anymore, but he's not fully able to see yet. And then verse 25, then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again a second time. And then he opened his eyes, his sight was restored, he saw everything clearly. Why would Jesus do it this way? Now, we know it was intentional. We know Jesus intentionally did it this way. How do we know that? How do you know that Jesus did this intentionally like this? Well, it's because we know two things about Christ. We know that he had the power to do it in one fell swoop. We know he had the power to do that. And we know that Jesus was always perfectly intentional. And everything that he does. And so this should cause us to stop and to ask the question, why? Why does he do it like this? It's, it's I, I believe, an intentionality, not just in Jesus doing it this way, but in God putting it in Scripture this way so that we would ask the question, why? Why did he do it like this? It is not as though this was a particularly tricky case of blindness. It is not like us trying to get a stain out of a piece of clothing, and when the the first try doesn't remove it fully, we repeat the process until it's fully gone. If at first you don't succeed, try, try again. That's not what is going on here with Jesus. This is the only miracle in all of the Gospels where Jesus' initial work does not heal fully and instantly. It's the only time. It's odd. It's peculiar. And so it should cause us to ask the question, why? Now, unfortunately, the text doesn't tell us. The text doesn't tell us. Jesus didn't explain himself. Mark didn't explain it. God didn't give us the explanation. And so we are left to speculate, and we must speculate with humility. But I do believe that it is the Lord's intention for us to draw lessons from this because of how odd it is, because of how different it is, because we know this would have been intentional. We must speculate with humility. Any conclusion that we make, we must understand we could be wrong because the scripture doesn't tell us definitively. We need to test our conclusions with what we know from the rest of scripture. But remember what Jesus says to those who heard his parables. Over and over again, he says things like, whoever has ears to hear, let him hear. The parable is left without explanation. He would sometimes go and explain it to the disciples, but the crowds left without explanation. And Jesus says, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. And so this is us seeking to have spiritual ears to hear this morning, to hear what the Lord is really saying to us by doing it this way. Sometimes God refuses to give us the explanation on the surface. Sometimes he leaves it up to us to discern the lesson. And if we have been trained, if our spiritual senses have been trained by studying the Bible and communing with God, then we will be able to learn from Jesus here, even though he doesn't explain himself. Now, perhaps, perhaps Jesus did this gradually so as not to shock this man's eyes. Perhaps it's a a physical thing. 
Like when you're nursing a starving person back to health, you should not allow them to gorge themselves on their first meal. When we come to Christ, when we come to Christ, our healing is also gradual, is it not? Our healing is gradual. We are saved fully 100% at the time of our baptism, yes. We are justified 100%, if you want to use the language of Paul. That happens fully and completely in an instant. But our sanctification, our, our, our growing in holiness is gradual. Our healing is gradual. It takes a lifetime. God does not throw everything at us all at once. He gives us milk initially, not solid food, until we are ready to move on. But I believe there's more here than just that. This seems to be a lesson for his disciples. And we know, even though he took this man away from the the town and the crowds, we know his disciples know about this because Mark is writing about it. Mark, by the way, we believe got most of his information from his gospel from Peter himself. It seems to be a lesson for his disciples. They were beginning to see who Jesus was, but their sight of him was not yet complete. Do you remember how last week's passage ended? If you just look right there at verses 14 through 21, they're in a boat with Jesus. Jesus says to them, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and of Herod, and they don't get it. They think he's he's coming down on them for not bringing enough physical bread. And at the end of the, the passage last week, verse 21, it says, do you not yet understand? Jesus says to his, his apostles, do you not yet understand? Well, that's, that's the same with us. The same is true for us. There are some things that we understand, but there, there are many that we don't yet understand. Our spiritual sight is gradually increasing. We have a partial sight of God now, but the fullness of eternity is when our, our vision, our spiritual vision of God will become clear. It's like how they say that a baby gradually gains their sight in the first few days and weeks of their their life outside of the womb, or how after cataract surgery, it takes a few days for your sight to fully improve. For us, it takes a lifetime to be able to see clearly with our, our spiritual eyes. And just as this man thought that people and trees looked alike, you notice that? He said, I, I see people, but they look like trees that are walking. Well, so we at first have trouble distinguishing between doctrines or even sometimes between false and true teaching, do we not? It's us. Hebrews chapter 5, starting in verse 13, says this, For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have, watch this, their powers of discernment trained by constant practice, to distinguish good from evil. So part of becoming mature in Christ is having our powers of discernment trained, but we need constant practice to have that happen. It takes time. It's not going to happen all at once. Brothers and sisters, I want to encourage you this morning. I want to leave you with an encouragement today from this passage. If you are in Christ today, if you have come to know the Lord, you are like this blind man after the first time that Jesus touched his eyes. After the first time. We are coming out of our blindness. We are coming out of our blindness. Earlier we we mentioned that 
2 Corinthians says, Satan has blinded the minds of unbelievers, but then the Lord says, let there be light. And as Paul, the the scales fall from our eyes and we can begin to see, but it's not a full sight. We are, as this blind man is, in between stages. We are starting to see, but our vision is still blurry. We don't see everything clearly just yet. We don't understand everything just yet, right? I mean, that's, that's all of us. We don't understand everything about the Lord, about his ways, just yet. If you have moments where you listen to sermons or you read your Bible and you think, I don't know if I understand this, be encouraged. You're normal. You're normal. Now, God does not want us to remain in a state of infancy. He he does not want us to, to remain stagnant. He wants us to grow. He wants us to mature. But be encouraged. Jesus' own apostles were slow to get it. And God knows. He knows. He is patient with us. Like a caring and loving father teaching their child to walk or or to speak. But he does not want us to stay in our infancy. He is a patient and compassionate father. Do you ever doubt that God is pleased with you? Do you ever think, surely God is not pleased with me? Surely I am a disappointment to God. Perhaps because you don't understand many things in his word. Perhaps because you struggle with sin. Let me encourage you today. God is pleased when you try. God is pleased when you try. With sincerity. Just try. You will fall And you will always find others who are further along than you are. But performance and skill and intellect are not what please the Lord. In Isaiah 66, 2, God says, this is the one to whom I will look. What kind of person does the Lord look to? He says, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and who trembles at my word. There's nothing in there about performance. There's nothing in there about skill or intellect. Humility, contrition, trembling at God's word. The smallest and weakest of us can do that. The smallest and weakest of us can please God. That is what pleases God. A sincere trying with honesty and humility. Not success, just trying. Be encouraged. The Lord is more compassionate and more gentle than I think every single one of us imagines. More compassionate, more gentle than you imagine. He is not in the business of guilt-tripping people into growth. He is not the boss that everyone fears. He is the parent that children run to and feel safe with. That's the Lord. That's the Lord. He is so compassionate that he sent his only son to suffer and die on the cross so that you could have your sins forgiven. Even though he knows every bit of your sin, he knows every failure, he knows all of your stubbornness, he knows all of your stupidity, he knows how many times you go back to the same thing and hurt yourself time and time again, and he still sent Jesus 
to die for you so that he could bring you to himself. So that he could put your sins away from you. And so that you could be with him for all eternity. This is our father. A true and loving father. He will not leave the guilty unpunished. He will not give a free pass to those who refuse to come to him through his son, Jesus Christ. But he opens the way for any who would want to come, for any who would humble themselves and place themselves before his throne, for any who who feel like, I cannot do this on my own. I give up. I need you. The weakest and smallest of us can come to the Lord and be pleasing to him. That's what I want to leave us with right now as we go into a time of prayer. I ask that you spend this time, these next few moments, in prayer, pouring your heart out to God. Responding to whatever he has just laid upon your heart through his word. Go to him and and be honest with him. And humble yourself before him and speak to him. It's what he wants We're all going to do that right now for just a few minutes. And then after we do that, we'll come back together. We'll have an invitation time where those who might need to respond to God's word in a public way can do so. For just a few moments now, let's pray.